of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. He also said, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like that, like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. In... Beartown, the opening novel in Frederick Bachman's Beartown trilogy, 15-year-old Maya Anderson is assaulted after a hockey game by the small town's hockey legend, Kevin Erdahl. Now, at first, Maya wants the whole experience to go away. She finds it so terrifying that she really doesn't want anybody to know about it. She realizes that if she stays quiet, well, then Kevin hurts only her. But if she speaks publicly about it, Kevin will devastate the lives of everyone who loves her. She stays in her bedroom and tries to hide the livid bruises, claiming to have a fever so that everybody will just leave her alone. Now, her mom and dad know something's wrong. Still, they're so worried about being those kind of parents, you know, the, 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 the constantly hovering helicopter parents who micromanage every detail of their child's life, that they swallow their concern in an attempt to give her some space. Well, Maya realizes almost immediately that in a village like Beartown, the sacrificial life on the altar to normalcy will be hers. Kevin carries the hopes and the aspirations of a, a group of people convinced that very little stands between them and the meaninglessness of a small town on its last legs. They want a hero. If not to raise their fortunes, then at least to raise their dying hopes. And Maya knows that they'll bury anything or anyone who threatens those delicate dreams. Maya's father, Peter, himself a former NHL player, is the general manager of the Beartown Hockey Club, the Bears, which he's helped to build over the previous 10 years into something of a powerhouse. 
Things have gone so well, in fact, that the party where the assault happened came after the national semifinal tournament, which Beartown won, moving them into the national junior hockey finals in Sweden. Now, after a week of solitary misery, Maya decides to tell her story so that Kevin doesn't get a chance to hurt anybody else. No other girls. On the day of the hockey finals, Maya breaks down and tells her parents everything that happened to her that night. Shattered, Maya's parents rush her to the police department to report this horrific story. And though Maya was, has a pretty good idea of the implications of what's going to happen when she, she goes public, she finds it hard not to feel like she's undergoing a second unspeakable attack when she does. Of this time at the hands of the people who are supposed to be, at least in theory, responsible for keeping her safe. Every freighted question they ask feels to Maya like they're trying to get her to admit that everything that's happened to her is a product of her four choices. Instead of a violent act of aggression against her, that will plague her nightmares throughout the rest of her life. Though they offer vaguely plausible gestures of sympathy, and though they'd never say it out loud, perhaps even to themselves when they're alone, she can see in the investigator's eyes that they believe she's brought this on herself. And worse yet, the town needs the whole thing to be about her and not about the young man who attacked her. But as the players board the bus for the championship game, things get considerably worse when the police show up and they drag Kevin Erdahl off in handcuffs. Now later, people will say that though they're sorry that, uh, you know, that this happened, and, 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 that no young woman should have to experience this, to the extent that they believe that anything happened at all and that she's not just making it up to get attention, They say that they're convinced of going to police, the police, and hauling off their hometown hero on the day of the most crucial game in Beartown for a generation. It's a, it's, a, it's a political move. It's calculated. That Peter is getting back at the board of the hockey club for making him fire their coach of 40 years. And the whole family gets bum-rushed transposed from the, the center of village life out to the margins where all the social lepers and outcasts are forced to find refuge. They're forced to stand on the outside looking in while occupying the center of the town's gaping chasm of self-loathing. I mean, lifelong friends avoid them. People they've known their whole lives refuse to meet their gaze as they walk down the street. Animated conversations stop cold as soon as they walk into the room. Eventually, Maya understands that to most of the people in the struggling village of Beartown, the real crime wasn't that a defenseless 15-year-old had been attacked. The true offense was that she didn't care enough about everybody else's comfort to shut up about it. 
Of course, everyone claims to be outraged by the horrifying nature of the whole affair, only what they find alarming is Maya's selfishness in ruining the life of a young man with so much promise. The real transgression in their eyes is the attack on their dreams, not the attack on her person. Everybody was angry, but for the wrong reasons. I mean, we see it all the time in our own politics, don't we? People get angry, not so much about a political scandal, but that someone leaked it to the press. Well, yeah, you know, January 6th hasn't, wasn't something we want to encourage, but I mean, if you prosecute the people responsible, it's, I mean, it's going to divide the country. I'm sorry, what's that? You think doing something to cause more division is preferable to looking the other way? Even though ignoring it will just give permission to future dopes and conspiracy nuts? That's what you think? See, you're the problem. When Jesus' listeners first heard this parable from our text this morning, they, they, they know who the hero is and who the villain is supposed to be without even stopping to think about it. Contrary to the unfortunate habit of Christianity in viewing Pharisees as sort of mustache-twirling bad guys, in first-century Judea, the Pharisees were largely considered people who actually took their religious commitments seriously. In the long story of the development and survival of Judaism, the Pharisees were actually the good guys. Why? Well, because after the temple was destroyed in 70 CE, it was the Pharisees who persuaded the scattered Jews that it was Torah that was indispensable to their faith, not the temple. I mean, they could live without a temple. They'd proven that over long periods when they existed without there being a temple. So even though they'd gone for long times without that core, sort of stable structure in their midst, they'd still been God's children. But they'd never gone without the law. And unlike the temple, the law is portable. They take the Torah with them when they, for, they were forced to scatter to different parts of the world to escape persecution. The Pharisees are that group who made modern rabbinic Judaism possible. But tax collectors, on the other hand, were universally despised in the Roman Empire, especially among Jews. They were traitorous collaborators, evil stooges only too willing to sell out their neighbors in exchange for a few more privileges and a lot more money. And the profits that those tax collectors skimmed off the top almost always came out of the pockets of those who could least afford it. See, it, it was socially acceptable at the time, maybe even socially mandatory, to hate tax collectors. You, you, you didn't have to justify your animosity towards tax, tax collectors because everybody loathed them. I mean, they were the, 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 the Elon Musks of their day. 
As Luke tells us, tax collectors were those whom the public generally regarded with contempt. But Luke seems to think that far from focusing on hypocrisy as the target of Jesus' ire, the central issue Jesus has in his sights is the easy contempt for the usual suspects. Now, why do I say that? Well, because the word we translate as contempt in this 18th chapter of Luke is used only two other times in Luke's writings. Another instance of it in the Gospel of Luke, and one in the book of Acts. A few chapters after today's Gospel reading, after the wheels have come completely off the whole Jesus thing, he stands before King Herod and his soldiers to be judged for the crime of inciting insurrection, most likely prompted by that incident, you remember the Jesus vaudeville routine uh, down at the temple where he did the can-can with the money changers tables, you remember that? In the 23rd chapter, Luke tells us that Herod and his goons treated Jesus with contempt. Even later in the fourth chapter of Acts, Peter and John are hauled in front of the Sanhedrin for preaching about Jesus. Peter claims that Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which is to say, perhaps more fittingly, Peter tells the religious big shots that Jesus is the stone that they have regarded with contempt. In other words, Jesus has a real stake in who gets regarded with contempt because it's almost always practiced most harmfully by those who regard themselves as righteous against those everyone else considers trouble. And because they're words used by the narrator, Luke's readers, actually the hearers, because the Gospels were read aloud in services, they, they would have picked up on this use of the word contempt as a way of framing Jesus' point in this story. See, Jesus' listeners who were there, in the, the ones hearing the, 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 the parable in the first place, well, they don't have the same luxury. They don't, they don't have the same setting. They don't have access to a Morgan Freeman voiceover giving them stage directions. When Jesus told this parable, the first thing his, his listeners would have done automatically would be to identify the hero and the villain in the story. And if the hero were a little bit more difficult to determine, because not everybody loved the Pharisees, then the villain would have been instantly recognizable. I mean, whatever else they may have felt about the Pharisees in the story, they would have regarded the tax collector with the contempt reserved for greedy traitors with without even having to think about it. They just knew. I mean, there was no moral calculation by which a tax collector could be anything other than a reprobate. In their minds, they know all they need to know to single out just who it is they're supposed to hate. In, in the Jewish celebration of Purim, they, they rehearse the story of Esther and Mordecai 
and how they saved the Jews from annihilation at the hands of Haman, the vizier of the Persian king Xerxes. When Haman comes on stage in these modern celebrations, the children boo and hiss. It's, 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 it's like people's reaction when they hear the Imperial March and Darth Vader's creepy breathing. Or, or, or what happens to UK fans when they hear Rocky Top. See, we're socialized from the time we're infants to know who it is permissible to ignore and despise. And we teach our children every time we, pa we hurry past a houseless person, every time we assume that a black person must have done something wrong when they died at the hands of the police, every time we stand silent while our LGBTQ immigrant or handicapped neighbor confronts the inexorable walls of injustice built to let us know just who's supposed to be in and who's supposed to be out. It's in the air we breathe, the water we drink. I mean, if you know, you know. So we shouldn't be too judgmental about the response of Jesus' audience. I mean, they react the way they've been programmed to react. But Jesus challenges a shared view of this social hierarchy, one that reflexively grants some people in the penthouse, a life in a penthouse while relegating others to lives in hell's antechamber. I mean, he knows his audience will be angry when he gets to the punchline, but Jesus tells the joke anyway. See, he wants them to adjust their thinking, to recalibrate their sight so that they see their neighbors for who they really are instead of settling for a cheat codes in a game that has already determined the winners and losers before anyone rolls the first set of dice. And Jesus wants them to be mindful. He wants them to be angry for the right reasons. Because here's the danger. You can't love people through a wall. I mean, even a wall that's built with the best of intentions, one meant to keep us safe from those who scare us or from people we think deserve to be cut off, or from those we're convinced aren't important enough to care about in the first place. It should come as no surprise that Jesus sets this parable within the confines of the temple. Because the temple was built to keep you constantly aware of where everyone fits into the great cosmic org chart. A wall in the temple separated the Gentiles from the Jews. A wall separating the women from the men and the priests from the ordinary Jewish men. And then there were walls separating the high priest from everybody else. See, walls divide us by identifying who's allowed in and who has to stay outside with the other riffraff. Are you worthy? Do you meet the guidelines required not only for membership in the club, but for admittance into the vestibule? Setting aside your own worthiness for a moment, the walls also de demand to know if you're prepared to help fortify them. Add stones to plug the holes against interlopers who threaten to invade. Are you ready to concede that the folks we install as our own social police, our 
our, our, our own personal border security and immigration control agents, that they're the final authorities on who gets Platinum Club member perks and who has to fly standby for the rest of their lives. Now that's even if they can get past TSA in the first place. But you see, Jesus says that all the walls that decide for us who's in and who's out are the problem. Well, they're convenient, to be sure, but the, but, but the real problem is that the walls render people disposable without ever requiring us to look them in the eye, peer into the brokenness of their hearts to see children that God has created, children God loves as much as us. We should devote as much care to discerning the objects of our righteous indignation as we devote to deciding who deserves our unexamined contempt. In Beartown, only a few people show they're willing to make an effort. Only a few people are willing to entertain the possibility that the defilement of a young woman's body trumps any sentimentality about the prospect of ruining the chances for a future hockey star, tanking the team's place in the standings. They blame the easiest target. Those, that one, who doesn't have the voice to defend herself. And sadly, that's too often the case in our own world. Isn't it? The weakest get identified as the problem. But that's why we're here. In our struggle to live the way Jesus asked us to live, we stop standing silently on the sidelines as people cry out. The people everybody's been told don't deserve our attention often live in anguish and quiet desolation, imploring God to stand with them in a world where everyone else has abandoned them. But we can't abandon them. We're the ones called to place our bodies, our reputations, our lives between the machinery designed to grind up the weakest and those that same machine targets with deadly accuracy. We're the people who protest the isolation and exploitation of the vulnerable and the forgotten at the hands of the powerful and the well-connected. We're not supposed to remain quiet and unaffected. When we see people rendered disposable, excluded from our midst, separated from us by walls, with contempt, We're the ones who get angry for the right reasons. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, 
Please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.